0: Welcome back to the Science House Foundation podcast series where we examine the intersection between science and mathematics education, 21st century workforce preparedness, and the future of education. Today's guest is John C. Carver, the superintendent of schools in the Van Meter School District in the state of Iowa in the Midwestern United States. John and his team have been at the forefront of U.S. education innovation, exploring how to create a 21st century school and more importantly, how to bridge the gap between students who enter into school understanding contemporary technology, oftentimes more competently than the teachers who teach them. Rita J. King featured John and his school district in our recent report, Imagination, Creating the Future of Education and Work. I'm personally incredibly inspired by John's work and thrilled to have him join us here today via Skype. John, thanks so much for making the time to join us. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Joshua. It's really my pleasure. John, I'd like to start out by asking sort of a a broad question, and that is, uh, what does a 21st century teacher and classroom look like? And more importantly, perhaps, what's the role of the instructor in that environment?
1: Well, you know, the educational system that we currently have in place was one that was designed at the turn of the last century in, in, in 1909. And and at that time, the educational system was tasked uh, to turn out workers to work in the industrial age in the factories. And what we knew about systems at the time, we applied towards education. Um, So the educational system you and and I went through, uh, you see a lot of those industrial model thinking as you as you walk through the schools, for example, uh, instead of a of a conveyor belt, you have passing times. Uh, everything was equated to time on task. Uh, interchangeable parts. Uh, teachers were were not teachers; they were content teachers. And it's interesting if you go to a, a a social gathering and you're with a bunch of teachers and you ask them what they do, they'll say, "Well, I'm the math teacher," or "I'm a second grade teacher." which in my mind, the teacher of the 21st century is an educator, a facilitator, a teacher, not specifically um, uh, limited by a content. So in that old thinking, kind of what we've been trying to do here in Van Meter is to look at what the 21st century is and try to redesign uh, classrooms and learning based on what the current reality is. So um, in Van Meter, and, and we're not there yet. I mean, uh, in 2009, our, our board tasked us to be a 21st century school district, K-12, uh, by the fall of 2013. So we're just two and a half years into this journey. But I would tell you, when we step through the looking glass, and our rate of change is accelerating exponentially. Um, So, to walk through a classroom in Van Meter, one of the first things you'd notice is that uh, uh, the students, all students grades 6 through 12, have been issued wireless laptop computers, MacBooks and that, instead of carrying big book bags, you see them walking around uh, uh, with a a bag with a a MacBook in it. Um, If you were to go down to the elementary uh, wing, uh, you would see uh, uh, computers, iPads, iPods uh, in every classroom. Uh, Now, the elementary isn't necessarily one-to-one, but technology is invisible. Uh, It's seamless uh... and that uh, we don't have computer labs the, the, the technology is placed into the hands of the students and the teacher then uses the technology when appropriate uh... but in a second grade class or a second grade classroom uh, just today i was walking through the building and uh, the kids were on, utilizing an online um, uh, website where kids from Van Meter were challenging kids throughout the United States to do math equations, and they were timed math tests. And, and the thing that, that was pretty striking to me is that in our uh, elementary, um, when we went one-to-one with our secondary, we before we did that, we were a PC school. And so we transferred our PCs to the elementary, we got our secondary MacBooks, and then mobile PC carts, along with Mac carts, are available in, the, in our elementary. And, and where I go with this is as I came into the second-grade classroom, uh, there were some kids utilizing um, PCs. There were some kids utilizing Mac computers. And when I talked to the student, I said, well, what's the difference between the computers? Well, Mr. Carver, can't you see one is black and one is white? And uh, to the second graders, the the platform was meaningless. It was just that they were able to get out on the internet and and to and to connect with other learners. Um, in the secondary classrooms, again, we're 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 moving away from the desks all in a straight row, the teacher with her desk or his desk in the front lecturing. Uh, what you find is that uh, learning is going on individually and that we've experimented with all kinds of teaching strategies from flipped classrooms. Uh, We're experimenting with blended instruction, which part of it's online, part of it's face-to-face, as well as the assessment piece, moving away from A, B, C, and D uh, to looking at competency and standards-based assessments. Uh, So, I mean, in two and a half years, uh, man, we've covered a lot of ground.
0: This is incredible. One of the things that this brings to mind is, is how do you intersect this uh, level of creative approaches to education with a system that has different expectations of you as an administrator?
1: If you're referring to like, uh, the, the tests that are needed for like No Child Left Behind, uh, if you're referring to you know, the roles of, of a building administrator, a principal or a superintendent, um, they're, they're changing. They're being redefined. And it's one of those um, it's one of those situations where, you know, I still have to uh, I'm still held accountable to the state for um, ITED testing and, and basic skills testing and, and assessments that way. Uh, but one of the things that I that I tell the, our Department of Ed is that those are 20th century assessments trying to measure 21st century learning, and uh, that creates quite a conundrum. Uh, because in, in our world, um, we're pretty much textbook free and, uh, we're pretty much paperless, uh, at least through grade seven through 12 and our sixth grade is getting that way. And so, uh, the old dot to dot test, um, It doesn't measure a student who has been working with students at uh, uh, Bonner High School in Philadelphia creating a personal learning network. I mean, there's no assessment for that yet. Uh, Or students, um, I don't know if I mentioned, but uh, Rockwell Collins in Cedar Rapids, which is a Fortune 500 avionics company. They build radios uh, for the Department of Defense. They've provided us with a virtual reality capacity. And so we have currently two uh, projection systems that allow the kids to render, um, do renderings of of, uh, objects and then project them in three-dimensional holograms and interact with them. Uh, That's kind of hard to capture on the ACT test. Uh, And so what I tell people is that we are at a printing press moment in the history of mankind. Now, you have to stop and think about that for a second uh, when the printing press was invented, uh, it made the Bible available to everyone. Uh, it changed people's thinking. Uh, it fractured the Catholic Church. Uh, it's, it brought about the Industrial Revolution and basically turned every system upside down. Gee whiz, doesn't that sound like the internet and technology today? And so we're right in the middle of that change. In fact, I still think we're on the front-end side of the front-end side. And that, you know, looking to the future, uh, yeah, we still have old uh, paradigms and old mandates that are in place, um, but they're going to quickly melt away. Uh, the part that's kind of frightening is that no one knows what they're going to melt away into.
0: So that's really that gets me thinking about what comes after high school, what comes after K through twelve. If you have students that are being taught not just by teachers who were content teachers, but are now educators uh, in collaborative learning environments where they're using virtual reality, and they and it sounds like you know a, a scene from Star Trek in many ways. Um, there was an article that came out earlier this week or recently in the Chronicle of Higher Education that questioned whether college is still necessary and I think that a lot of the way that colleges are educating are not don't appear necessarily to be in step with the same kinds of collaborative creative environments that you're doing that are book free and cetera. so do you feel like college is something that your students might not be going to and if they aren't going to be going to that are you trying to give them different kinds of skills in anticipation of this kind of thing
1: Wow. I mean, Joshua, you ask a whole bunch of questions. Let's, let's see if we can take them one at a time. Uh, first one, um, as far as uh, uh, college uh, being necessary, um, you know, as, as I mentioned, we've been doing this now for two years. And uh, earlier this fall at Homecoming, uh, we had several of our students come back, and, and they, I asked them, I said, well, how is your college experience going? And they were t- attending, these were several students attending various uh, uh, universities and colleges in the Midwest, and, and a lot of them said, Mr. Carver, this is killing me, and, and why is that? Well, they go to class and and for two years they were used to organizing their world with a MacBook, uh, taking their notes that way, collaborating uh, digitally, online, uh, access to many of our teachers 24-7. And to go to college and go into their freshman seminar classes and being told to turn their computers off uh, was pretty frustrating uh going up to instructors uh because they had missed a class and say well you know where's your wiki that we can go and and pick up the notes that we missed and the professor's looking at them like what's a wiki um so uh our college and universities kind of out of the loop yes um how quickly they can adapt uh boy i i don't know um I, I don't know if I, I think there is such a fear in colleges and universities, and and not all uh, institutes of higher learning. There are many that are are rapidly moving this direction, but there's some that aren't. And um, you know, so so there's that piece of it. I guess the the other piece of it is is that uh, my own thinking is that. Um, Via the Internet and and, uh, and the laptop, computer, or some kind of digital device, uh, you can pretty much access all content. Uh, in fact, there's an, an app that's out there right now called Symboloo, uh which is a, a web bookmarking tool, which if you use it, you can find just about all the content you never want, or you can go perhaps maybe to the Khan Academy. The, the content piece uh, and the ability to acquire content, I mean, it's – it's almost to the point where it's like air. You can go and get it. And so colleges and universities that used to have cornered you know, the market uh, on, on knowledge, it's like, hmm, I don't know. Uh, in many instances, again, I, I look back to that printing press moment where prior to the printing press, uh, what was it? It was the, it was the, the, the churches that, that by hand would copy the Bible. And people who could not read and did have did not have access to Bibles had to rely on the interpretation of the of the priests as to what the you know what the book was saying, and you know after the printing press anybody could get the Bible and and uh, the the church no longer had a monopoly on on books and on and on knowledge, and so maybe we're at that point again today. Um, I would tell you that it is a game changer. The, the the Internet and the access to content online, it is a game changer. And that um, just like new systems came online with the invention of the printing press, uh, new systems are starting to emerge, you know, as we speak. Um, so, you know, colleges and universities um, – you know, I guess the other piece of it is I look at the financial uh, commitment to, to seek higher ed. Uh, I don't know about out on the East Coast, but uh, here in the Midwest, you know, uh, many students, um, you know, they go to college right out of high school, and, uh, you know, they get and they incur student debt, student loans, and, and graduate in four, sometimes five years. At the end of that time, being anywhere from sixty to, you know, $80,000 in debt, With student loans and they still don't know what they want to do and you know it's unfortunate because then they spend what the first third of their working life paying off their student loans Um, so i think you know unless you truly know what it is you 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 want to be i i think that's another flaw in the current educational systems is that and you hear this you know political rhetoric all the time is everybody's going to go to college everybody's going to go to college Uh, What's wrong with going into the trades? What's wrong with being an electrician or a plumber or a mechanic? Um, Those are honorable professions uh, which require, you know, sophistication and and use of STEM skills. Um, So, again, I I just see this whole landscape as, as changing and changing very rapidly. So let's think about the printing
0: press moment in the context of what it means against the backdrop of this global economic crisis, and particularly the U.S. economic crisis. Uh, A number of articles that have come out over the last couple months have argued that the way that the U.S. can recover from that crisis is by regaining our leadership role in science and mathematics, and that means getting more students who are – interested and versed in science and mathematics, and that's certainly the goal of the, of the Science House Foundation. So I'm wondering what how you are approaching science education as a core skill, science and mathematics in particular, integrated into this printing press ap- ap- well, moment approach that you have to
1: education. Right. Well, um, Governor Branstead was kind enough to uh, appoint me to the his advisory council on on STEM education here in Iowa, and and I'm convinced that that uh, science, technology, engineering, and math will be the survival skills of, of of people going into the 21st century. Um, and and you know you mentioned uh, you know getting kids more interested in uh, you know science and and math, you know it. I think kids have a intuitive interest in science and math, but the way in which it's it's um, uh, taught in schools turns kids off. Uh, you know, I, I can I, I I'm thinking of some students in particular that if they had to sit in a math class, uh, they would be doing everything in their power to figure out a way to get out of it. Uh, Whereas if I were to take them out to the industrial arts area, and uh, they had a passion for uh, uh, construction, uh, they could figure out board feet, concrete square footage in their head in a heartbeat. Uh, You know there there are students that you know have been identified as not liking math, but yet if you talked baseball scores and statistics, they could name everything off. And so I, I think what has to happen, well, first of all, uh, science, technology, engineering, and math—they uh, should not be taught in isolation. Uh, what we need to do is create a system, or it identifies children's passions and, and their strengths, and, and let them go into those, support them in those passions and strengths. And what will happen is is that they will they will seek out. Um, science and uh, technology, engineering, and math skills so that they could, uh, you know, chase their passions. And, you know, it's interesting, too, if you're in your passion or something that you like to do, it unlocks um, unlimited energy. Whereas if, you're, uh, if you don't see the, the relevance of, of something and you're being forced to sit in and, and, and to do rote memorization or, or practice sets without seeing what a meaning is, of course you get turned off to it. Um so I, I think it's a it's a paradigm shift uh in that uh you know science and math they're not taught in isolation, but they are um the, the standards and the skill sets needed are are connected with kids' passions. And um, you know, we, we've experimenting, we continue to experiment with that here in Van Meter, uh because we still have requirements for graduation and, and state requirements. Um but Josh you reflect yourself if if you are are given a real world problem and it's something in your passion you're going to seek out whatever training and knowledge you need to figure out that to figure out that problem um, you know that's what needs to be a, a system design in education here in the United States
0: tell me what it means to create an educational system that is multidimensional
1: Well, the the educational system that we have right now today is pretty sequential, uh, and it is a straight line. Uh, You go to kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, and and children who come into that system, if you don't fit parameters, uh, design specs, you are tagged and you fall out either into special education or you fall out into talented and gifted. And you know what we're what we're wanting to do is is basically create a an individual uh, an IEP an individual instructional plan for every student, uh, keeping in mind there are certain skill sets that kids have to master, uh, but looking at uh, their learning styles, their passions, and so for the classroom teacher, that becomes a challenge because you could have uh, uh, a classroom of 20 students, each student uh, maybe working towards a certain goal, but doing it 20 different ways. Um, and. Uh, Fred Bramante, who 's on the the school board there, uh, State Board of Education in uh, New Hampshire, he talks about which I think is is good thinking, who says it has that skill set has to be mastered in a classroom by a teacher uh, if you have a, a passion for music and you know what the competencies are you 're supposed to have and you 're in the community orchestra why wouldn 't that count towards? Uh, fulfilling those those uh, criterium and stuff, um, so it, it's just a um, and it, it is so messy. I mean, uh, every time we try to draw it out, it becomes it looks like a ball of yarn. Um, but it is uh, it it is it's it's not it's not linear. The other piece of it is, you know, in our in our current structure, somewhere somehow we equated chronological age to academic achievement level. And there is no research out there that says that all 13-year-olds are going to be at this certain academic level. And so, you know, that enters into disconnecting or or deconstructing grade levels, first grade, second grade, third grade. Um, and, and, you know, but keeping in mind, there's an academic achievement level or academics that the, uh, every student needs to be addressed with, and then the social, uh, social-emotional piece that needs to be addressed. And... Those are not parallel tracks. Uh, There are a lot of uh, young people who academically are very advanced but socially are very immature. But yet, what do we do? We stick them all in the same grade. Um, Again, it gets back to creating an educational system that adapts to the student, to the learner, and not the student and learner adapting to the educational system.
0: Could you imagine a classroom where, where you might have uh, a, a classroom that would, there would be a functional classroom socially where you had students who, who maybe excelled faster than some of their peers in their same age groups but were able to, to coexist and, and co-learn in an environment that... Uh,
1: that okay, might, yeah, I, I know where you're going with that. I don't mean to interrupt, but we did that with one-room schoolhouses... And, and a lot of these kids, when they leave the school, they're going home to neighborhoods and playing with kids who in, in multi generational settings. And in many instances, you've got you know um, junior high and high school kids taking care of elementary kids. Um, the, the, the relationships somewhere along the line, we started clustering relationships by chronological age. And by when we started doing that, we started segregating people based on their age. You know, and it's interesting that. Uh, and and don't get me wrong. I, I think there's a big difference between a a, a, a sixth grader being in in a classroom, grade wise. Let's say a twelve year old being in a classroom with eighteen year olds. I mean, they're, they're, I understand, and that gets back to the. Um, you know, the social maturity of the student and, and his academic achievement level. But, I mean, part of this thinking going forward is, so you've got a kid academically that's on the same level as an 18-year-old, but you're not going to let him academically continue to go forward because they're socially, I mean, again, I, we don't have it all figured out, but but those are some of the things that are in play. Um, and, you know, the other part of it is, is that you look at the research, um... Everything that I've read says that, you know, girls learn at a different rate than boys do. And yet we put all boys and girls of the same age into the same classrooms. Um, I mean, I think that's something that's, you know, worth looking at and exploring.
0: So I, I like the idea that maybe we need to, we could learn something from our predecessors who were teaching in one room classrooms and the integrated classrooms there. How do you manage the growing demands of a school system against a troubled economy?
1: In Iowa today, sixty percent of every uh, sixty cents of every tax dollar generated in Iowa goes towards education, and um, you know, education is a priority in the state of Iowa. And I think it gets back to. Um, within an educational system, looking at what your priorities are. Um, and, you know, grants and uh, are, are um, they're wonderful in starting pilot pro- projects, but the problem with a grant is that eventually it goes away. And so as a school administrator, you really have to look at what your income streams are, work with your board, work with your community, what are the priorities, and then allocate your resources to meet those priorities. Um, when we started this project, uh, in um, 2009, you know, we had in the community we had uh, folks that wanted to put in an all-weather track or lease the computers for the kids for learning. And uh, again, um, when you when you when you start to think differently, um, you see options that you've never seen before. And so, you know, the decision was made. The board voted 5-0 to put the track on hold, and then. Um, proceed with, uh, you know, our first mission, which is educating kids. And, you know, as we went through – and in Iowa, what we do is we have a uh, a physical plant and equipment levy, which is a property tax, and then we have a statewide one-cent sales tax. And all of that goes towards – Infrastructure for schools and so like at van meter we had a choice between putting in an all-weather track or doing the the uh, laptops uh, we voted to go forward with the laptops and after we got forward after we moved forward with that uh lo and behold our booster club um showed leadership and said well you know what we think a track's important and we're going to pledge a hundred thousand dollars towards that track project and which allowed you know that freed up money that we could go forward. And right now, you know, as we speak, Joshua, we're, we're finishing up an all-weather track here in Van Meter. Um, so I guess, you know, where I go with this is that you've got to look at what your funding is. And in some districts, if, if you don't have enough funding, then, you know, you got to look at, you got to think outside the box. Uh, you need to look at collaboration with other school districts. Uh, you need to look at uh, approaching um, foundations for, for money streams uh, like your organization. And um, to, just to say I can't do it is is not acceptable. Um, Joshua, you and I have talked, and, and, and I may have said this already, but I want to say it again. Um, transforming our educational systems and, and empowering our kids to think, lead, and serve, in my mind, is on the same level as national security. And, and when I hear folks talk about, well, I don't want to do that, or it's really going to change up, you know, what it's going to affect me, I basically see that as being very unpatriotic. Uh, because as you mentioned, you know, the economy of the world right now is not very good. Uh, and, you know, I, I keep uh, reading the ticker here as to the events that are happening in, in Greece. And, um, you know, in Iowa, uh, we have a declining population. We're going to lose a seat in the House of Representatives because of our population decline. Um, it, we are at a, a printing press moment, but it's also, uh, I, I would say, we're almost to a crisis situation where we have to think differently. And we have to let go of the of the of the of the thinking and the and the pedagogy of the past, and start looking to the future. Because, like, man, we're in the um, second decade of the 21st century, and educationally, what 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 are we doing different? Um, so, yeah.
0: I love the idea of think, lead, and serve being tantamount to uh, the amount of investment we put into national security. So. I want to ask you one final question. I thought that maybe during our interview we might be graced with this uh, relic of uh, of the 19th century schoolroom. But uh, before we uh, went on the air, you told me the story about why have school bells. So I'd like to end our conversation with that story. Huh. And, and well,
1: um, initially with one-room schoolhouses, uh, they didn't have intercom system. and A lot of times they didn't have electricity, but what they would do is, and a lot of folks in the communities uh, didn't have watches. So a system was set up using bells. So in the morning, when the uh, the school teacher was ready for students, uh, most instances it was a female, she would ring the school bell, and that was a, a sign to let the moms and dads know oh, it 's time for the kids to come to school uh, at the end of the day. They would ring the school bell again and and this would let the moms and dads know that oh the, the children are on their way home to start looking for them um, now we don't we don 't do the the bell through the community anymore, but uh, that idea, that concept uh, uh, has been adopted. So, like in many schools, they still have bells at the end of the 47 minutes or 53 minutes to tell you to go to the next thing. So, um, in our school district, we, in our building, we've pretty much turned off the bells except for the end of the day. And I like to think we have to do the bell at the end of the day so that the kids go, Oh, I got to stop learning. I got to go home now.
0: I love that. I'm going to include links on our website, but I encourage our listeners to follow. You on Twitter, it's it's at John C. Carver on Twitter. And I'll also include a list to some of your colleagues at Van Meter, who I also find to be incredible resources in terms of education and innovation. John C. Carver, superintendent of Van Meter School District in Iowa, thank you so much for the incredible leadership and innovation that you are demonstrating throughout education in general and helping us to find a way uh, into the 21st century in this printing press moment.
1: Thank you, Josh. Have a great day. You too.
0: I'm Josh Fouts, and this is the Science House Foundation podcast, and we'd like to welcome as one of our guests today, Kevin Temmer, who recently produced an interesting science animation project. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us on our podcast.
2: Hey, no problem. Great to be here.
0: Kevin, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your project and the background of it and, and sort of what, what excited you about it for our listeners, I think that would be really interesting.
2: Okay, well, basically, it tells the story of two characters, Jack and Jessica, and um, Jack has procrastinated on his science fair experiment, and he basically learns all the steps and procedures that, that one must do in order to participate in the science fair. And the video shows that um, science can is not only an educational thing, it can also be fun and exciting. And... I, I wanted to show kids that they can they can have fun and learn at the same time, and the background behind the video is basically uh, for high school. Um, I was I was in the IB program, and part of the IB program is that we have to be involved in community service, and one aspect of the community service is that we have to involve some form of creativity. So. Um, Back in middle school, I had a very good science teacher, um, Amy Basham, and my mom suggested that I um, create a video for her to help her class learn about the science fair and use that for my community service project. And I just fell in love with that idea, and from there, I just started coming up with characters. And I, I had a meeting with my old science teacher, and we discussed what she wanted, and I sort of just took it from there.
0: We will actually have a link and embed the video on our website for our listeners, for those of you who'd like to see the video. Kevin, did you teach yourself all your animation skills, or how did you learn to, to do the, the process?
2: Yeah, I'm mostly self-taught. I, I get a lot of inspiration from the, the cartoons and animation that I've watched throughout my life. And a lot of it is just playing around with the software, seeing what works, what doesn't. And when something doesn't work, finding a new way to make it work. And that's that's sort of similar to how science is, trial and error, experimentation.
0: Tell me what your, uh, what most interests you and what your greatest passion is around the sciences.
2: Well, as, as far as the sciences go, I've, I I get most of my inspiration from my dad. We've always had philosophical conversations about science and whatnot and just all the mysteries of the universe and I, I find it all very interesting to just question question different aspects of life and not just accept life but but try to dig deep down into the mysteries and find out different parts
0: now you've since graduated correct yes and so what are your plan what are your next plans in terms of education and studies
2: well right now I'm Majoring in computer animation at the Ringling College of Art and Design, and I hope to one day either um, work for a company like Pixar or create my own animated television series.
0: Your video has gotten a lot of attention from National Geographic Kids, PBS Kids, and uh, and others. Uh, how has that feedback um, uh, affected the your your interests, and and what what have you learned about? In, in your interaction with those networks and, and audiences
2: it was so surprising to see how many people enjoyed it and I really love the fact that so many kids were able to watch this and learn from it I, I never imagined something like that would happen and um, I mean I've learned a lot about after being in interviews and talking to different people just how to be involved in a professional environment and I, th- I think that this really will help me along in my career later on
0: you have a you have a knack for for teaching. do you think that you'll continue to produce other videos in your college studies that are intended to educate and inform and teach people, or do you think what do you have other artistic things to explore
2: Well at first, I thought this was a one time thing, but after I created it, I realized that it was so much fun sort of involving learning within uh, a cartoon environment that I, I've considered pro- approaching that later on as well and, and maybe even having a, a television series with, with the science siblings and sort of teaching kids different lessons in each episode. So
0: you think we might see more of the science siblings in your uh, production career?
2: It's very very possible.
0: You mentioned a teacher who was who was a great influence to you what what was it that made that teacher special, and what was the learning experience that inspired you and motivated you to go further and to do something as ambitious as this uh, as this video
2: well oh yeah my my middle school science teacher amy Batcham, she was such a, a good teacher she her interest in science showed she couldn't hide it she wasn't there just to teach she was there to learn and and be involved with their students. And I think that just helped me so much because when when someone's interested, when you can tell that someone wants to teach, it makes such a difference and it makes you wanna learn.
0: Kevin, thank you so much for making the time to join us on the Science House Foundation podcast. I wish you and we wish you the best of luck in your college studies. I hope you get that uh, job you'd like to get at Pixar sometime in the future and and, or an internship or anything like that. And please keep in touch and let us know what else you're doing, especially with things that relate to uh, science.
2: All right. Thank you so much.
0: Thank
1: you.